The sermon text this morning is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. I don't know if it's providence or not, but when I was going upstairs to get ready to come to church, um, Carol said I had a dream that uh, your sermon was going to be short and moving today. And I said, well, I don't know if I'll be able to hit either of those points, but there you have it. We're going to be talking about dreams and visions. So she had one. Well, you know, when I was in high school, I think it was 11th grade, I took a physics class class in physics. Now, I don't think I was inclined to science by any stretch, but I had some friends that had taken the class, and they said, you, you build and blow up things, and you drop and break things, and I thought, well, I could, I could do that. So I took this physics class, and, and in this class, I, I just remember learning that you drop an object from a building 10 stories high, and it will only attain a certain speed. It can be a brick. It won't keep getting faster and faster and faster. It, it, the resistance of the air ultimately causes things to only attain a certain speed. And I was fascinated by that, that the power of resistance of slowing things that are heavy and falling from not increasing speed. But then I started thinking throughout life, you know, we face the same resistance, you know, and whatever walk of life you're in, you face challenges, you face hindrances, you face obstacles that kind of slow you down and you don't achieve the ends that you want, you don't get the goals that you set out for. Just all these things that kind of slow you down from moving in life. And it's an easy step to make a parallel to the spiritual life. I mean, many of you probably would say, yes, there are there are hindrances in the spiritual life. I don't feel spiritually vital. I do struggle experiencing God's presence or his power. I don't feel his nearness to me. I feel like I take two steps forward, and yet I feel like I go three back. And over time, this spiritual, you know, kind of struggle leads to an apathy. You know, we're kind of like, why bother? You, you grow indifferent to the things of God because of the spiritual struggle that you have with all the resistance. When I was growing up, I grew up outside of Annapolis, as many of you know, and so we, we learned to sail early in life. And, uh, and my dad, one of the first boats he bought was a Corsair 25. It was a nice boat. It was big, comfortable. 
but it was just slow. It was slow. It had this big keel, you know, and so we could be out sailing, and it could be hurricane-force winds, and this boat would just go plodding along, couldn't get any speed to it. Why? I, mean, I used to think, well, if the winds are so strong, why is it going so slow? Well, it had a keel. It, there was resistance in the water. It was a drag. You know, you're trying to sail a boat with a, with a keel in the water. And when I got older, I was able to sail the smaller boats. And these smaller boats don't have that heavy keel. They have a dagger board, which gives it direction. And, and, and you can get, and they have a lot of sail area. So when the wind's blowing, boy, it gets on top of the water and it just flies because there's less resistance. And so the boats are much more agile. They're much faster. Well, I would say that's kind of a Zechariah is leading us to, to a life where there is a spiritual vitality, where the resistance is down, where you go from spiritual apathy to adoration. Zechariah, of course, was a prophet along with Haggai, who was this prophet. Both of them were prophets at the time around 520 B.C. They're speaking to the people in Jerusalem that had come back from the exile. You heard this last week. And they're prophesying to the people to be encouraged, to be renewed, to get on with the work of building a temple. That wasn't just building a temple. That was symbolic of, of building a people for God. Now you can imagine how they would have felt. They would have come back from exile. The city had been virtually run down for 70 years. There was no temple built. The walls were not up. I mean, they were a fraction of their nation. You can imagine how discouraged they were in their own spiritual lives. And so Haggai and Zechariah were sent to encourage them. Now Haggai, when you read him, there's kind of an edge to him, a little bit more of a rebuke of his words, particularly in chapter 1. But Zechariah is different. Zechariah is preaching to the same people at the same time. He's probably a little bit younger than Haggai. But he's preaching, and he's preaching a message of hope. In other words, he's trying to excite the people in faith by reminding them this is who God is and this is what God will do in the end. In other words, he's putting forth a vision of how God is going to bring all things together so that you and I are affected in the present because of the promise of the future. That's why we read chapter 8. Wasn't that a sweet chapter? Can you imagine to a people that have just been destroyed by a foreign nation, they come back and they said, listen, days are coming. They will grow so old, they lean on their staffs in the street. And little boys and little girls are playing in the street. That's the mark of serenity, security, prosperity. That's what God has. And Zachariah is saying, let me tell you about the future. Let me tell you about what God's going to do. So that's the message of of Zechariah, that he is going to be speaking to all that God will do. He's going to give us, he's like a spiritual doctor, he's going to give us this remedy for how to move forward in spiritual vitality. So four things you're going to see in this book of Zechariah. Four things. The first thing, in the first chapter, he's going to call us to repentance. That's the beginning of spiritual renewal. Uh, you're going to see that he gives us a vision that God sovereignly rules the nations. And you're going to see, thirdly, that, that we are all to persevere in obedience. The way you live your life before God in holiness, it matters. It matters to your joy. I, I mean, I've lived plenty of years disobedient to God. 
Joy was not the marker. I was going for joy, just never got there. And, and then the last point he makes is you have to fix your eyes on this Messiah that we're going to read about, this Jesus, of course. We know him now, but to the audience that Zechariah was preaching to, it was a Messiah, a branch that was coming. So there's four things, so we'll take them one at a time. First, there is this call to repentance. Now, I know you're thinking, you know, if he wants to enthuse the people, if he wants to give them a great vision of hope, we're starting with repentance. It seems counterintuitive. If you want people to be happy, tell them happy things. To get them to think about their sins won't necessarily lead to happiness. Not true. Not true at all. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 3. He says to, this is God now speaking to Zechariah. He says, therefore say to them, return to me and I will return to you. And, and then look how he goes on. He says, don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So I want to set the scene. Zechariah is coming to the people, and he's calling them to repent of their sins, to recognize that they've broken rank with God. They're going to repent, and they're going to live after God. Now, what Zechariah, what Zechariah does is he then reminds them of their fathers, their fathers who had not repented. God sent prophets to them, and they did not repent. And that's why he says, where are your fathers now? They're no more. They're gone. They've died. Where are the prophets? They're gone. In other words, Zechariah is calling the people to repent by reminding them of God's devastating judgment upon Jerusalem by sending them to the exile. He's saying, but my words overtook them. <clears throat> In other words, the point is that God's words were true. They did not repent, and look what happened. So Zechariah is trying to encourage the people to look towards God, but first repent. Repent. Notice he says repent or return to me. That Hebrew word means to turn back to God. So for you, the first ingredient of spiritual vitality, for you to be renewed in your faith, you must practice repentance. How do we do this? Well, by remembering past judgments, remembering. I, I want you to remember that there's value in thinking how God has acted in history for his people and against the people. You know, we've kind of, we've kind of been drawn into this chronological snobbery where we're so focused on the present, we don't think about the future, we've forgotten the past, but we just live in the here and in the now. We only forget the past at our own peril. God has recorded the history of his actions so that they be like smelling salts, like smelling salts to wake us up to the reality of God's judgment on sin. We have to repent. That begins this process of vitality. Not just remembering his judgments, but remembering his mercies. Do you notice in the text when he says, return to me and I'll return to you? Do you see the graciousness of God in calling us to repent? He's saying, 
return to me and I'll return to you. Don't we love redos? Don't we love second chances? I mean, don't we love the delete key when we make a mistake? Don't we love control Z, at least on my computer, kind of pulling back the document that you've just lost? I, I, I mean, we love redos. God is saying, here is a second chance for you. Here's another opportunity. Return to me. You have sinned. You've broken rank with me. You can return to me, and I'll return to you. This is gracious of God. When you look at your life right now, and you look at the relationships that you have, and you look at the past, how you've dealt with people, don't you regret some of the things you've said? You know, something came out of your mouth because you were frustrated. You would love to have taken it back. It caused a lot of damage. You can't get it back. Or the things, the bitterness that you've harbored, or the anger, or, 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 or whatever, that you've ruined a relationship, and you would love to take that back. God is giving us another chance. Perhaps that's the way you need with God. Maybe you're looking at God, and you've walked rebelliously against his word. Maybe you've just disregarded God. Maybe this week you haven't even given him a thought. And you're kind of like, how can I go back to God? I'd be hypocritical. No, he's saying, repent, return to me, and I'll return to you. Do you remember, even from the beginning of the Bible, we see the character of God. So Adam and Eve sin blatantly against God. And of course, they're, they're guilted, they're covering, and they're moved out of the garden. But what does God do? God goes to them, and he says, where are you, Adam? Obviously, God's not confused as to Adam's location. He's giving Adam an invitation to repent and return. Repentance, let me make sure you understand this, because we use it as kind of a Christian word or a spiritual word. To repent doesn't mean I just feel bad. It doesn't mean I'm just sorry. To repent means that, yeah, I am sorrowful over my action, but repentance understands the need to make amends, and repentance is actually, the key part of repentance is the turning to God. We, we turn away from sin, and now we return to God. That's repentance. Have you repented in the last 30 days to God or to a neighbor? So look back over your life. You know, Start with your own personal life and what you do with your eyes and your life. Look at your relationships, your spouse. Look at your family. Look at your jobs. Have you repented to God or to anyone in 30 days? And if you haven't, why haven't you? Am I to assume that you have not sinned at all and you don't need to repent? Am I to assume that, that sin has just kind of deceived you? That's not a big deal. It hasn't affected anybody. What should I assume by that? I, I just want to encourage you. I think much of our spiritual apathy is due to us just carrying a, a truckload of sins and behaviors that are very destroying to the joy God wants us to have. God won't let us be happy when we're in the midst of living against him. You may have happiness for a season. Sin is pleasure for a season. But the season's not as long as you think. So the beginning ingredient of moving out of spiritual apathy is by repenting, by, what? by cleansing ourselves, by repenting to God, asking for forgiveness. So that's the first, I would encourage you even this afternoon, just take a few minutes, think about your life, think about your marriage, think about how you've treated your children or your family or your coworkers, and ask God to reveal to you, is there any way in me that has been wicked? Has there been any way in me 
that is wrong and out of step with the Spirit of God. So that's the first ingredient, practicing regular repentance. It's ironic, it's one of those counterintuitive things for God that, you know, you go down first and then you see the stars brighter from the darker pit. Okay, the second thing he brings up is that you have to have a vision for God's sovereign rule. You have to have a vision. In other words, Zechari Zechariah is giving the people a vision for God's sovereign rule. Now, it takes a vision. You've got eight of them in the text here. There's eight visions from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way to chapter 6, verse 8. He gives eight visions in one night. Can you imagine that night? I, I mean, the visions, when you read them, they're going to be absolutely incredible. It's like the visions you may have when you eat pizza with anchovies or pepperonis real late at night. You just dream these crazy things. When you read these visions, you're going to think, what's going on? You're going to meet, a, you're going to meet horsemen. You're going to meet craftsmen. You're going to meet a high priest. You're going to meet lampstands. You're going to meet a flying scroll. You're going to meet chariots. You're going to meet a woman in a basket. I mean, it's some, it's some wild stuff. But each one has introductory words. And then an angel gives an interpretation of it. And now these eight visions are kind of put in what we call a chiastic structure. In other words, it's a literary device where the, the first and the last are parallel. And then the second and the seventh are parallel. And it goes that way. And, but they have one meaning, well, one general meaning. When you read through those eight visions, you're going to see that God is sovereign over all things. That God's sovereign rule will bring about the judgment on the wicked. It's going to bring about a restoration of the righteous. And as you read it, you're going to be just overwhelmed by all that God is promising. That God, it says again, will dwell with his people. So these visions are setting before your eyes a future that is absolutely glorious. Now, when you get to the end of the eight visions, you're going to get to this, this last passage in chapter uh, 6, verses 9 to 15. Let me just read a part of it for you. He says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So here's what's happening. Zechariah is saying, listen, these eight visions are promising that God's going to sovereignly manage his universe and bring about an end of all things to the good. And it's all going to happen in this man. That what the picture is from chapter 6, verse 9 to 15, there's Joshua the high priest. You met him last week. He's not the follower of Moses. He's a high priest named Joshua. And on his head is placed a crown, a crown made of gold and silver. Now this ought to arrest our attention because priests don't wear crown. The priests were from the line of Aaron. The kings who wore the crowns, they're from the line of David. But they're brought together in one, this Joshua with a crown on his head. In other words, what he's showing us is that there's going to be a unification of the priesthood and the kingship into one man called the branch who's going to bring peace and justice to all the nations. One man. Now, it doesn't take long for you to begin thinking, who might that man be? That's what the people in Zechariah's time were looking for. Who's this branch that's going to come? 
Well, the New Testament clears up for us who the branch is. Jesus came. The first thing he began to preach was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus started acting like a king. He gave a new law, the Sermon on the Mount. He began calling people to himself like a king does by calling the disciples and others. So you see the kingly reign of Jesus begin right as he introduces his ministry. But you see the priestly role of Jesus. Do you not remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus as being a, a priest forever. But, but let, me, let me tell you that he's not a priest as one who brings a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. So here we see in the visions ending in this end of chapter 6, that we're to look for a branch who is going to be a king and a priest and who will both cleanse his people. Because in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, you see the branch removing iniquity. You, you see this Joshua, the high priest, the cleansing of sins. You see it all there. So all that's to say that Zechariah is promising us one will come who will both cleanse from sin and rule over his people. This kind of news, this future salvation, you don't find it in the paper. You're not going to find it. The only place you hear these things of the future are in the scriptures. This is why as a church we study the scriptures. We sit under the preaching of the word. You give me this time on a lovely day. What does God say to me? This is why we talk about the scriptures. This is why we gather together. It's only in the scriptures that you hear this good news. Do you remember a few weeks back I said to you, I asked you a question. I said, do you think your best years are ahead of you or behind you? Now, I, I know if you're real young, you're probably thinking, well, my best years are ahead of me. There's college, there's work, there's family. But I'm talking really best years. You know, those of you who are older are thinking, no, my best years are behind me. You know, you're facing kind of age and the struggles and the difficulties that come with that. I quoted to you Richard Sibbs. He was an English Puritan in the um, 16th century, 17th century. And, and here's the words that he had. He says, God will have it so, that is for the comfort of Christians, that every day they live, they may think, my best is to come. That is, every day they rise, they may think, I'm nearer heaven one day than I was before. I'm near death and therefore near Christ. What a solace is this to a gracious heart. A Christian is a happy man or a woman in this life but happier in his death because he goes to Christ. Happiest of all in heaven because then he's with Christ. Do you think that way? Do you recognize that when Zechariah was preaching, there's a people in trouble and he's calling them to move forward spiritually and he gets them to move. The impetus of spiritual vitality is, do you know what's coming? Do you know, can you imagine, have you ever stopped and just given thought to what will that day be like? when you see the one, when you look at the face of the one who has died for you, who, who will reign over the entire world in peace and justice, you read the newspaper, you get overwhelmed. You look at the culture ahead, you don't know what's coming. You look at the geopolitical situation, what's going to happen? You look at your own life, your body breaks down, you face health crisis. And yet to know what's coming, 
it changes the way we live today. A future hope that is certain and solid changes the way we look. Otherwise, you will be a victim of your circumstances. You will forever be a victim. You'll be suffering and why me and all this sort of stuff. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some moderns think. It's not a form of escapism or, or wishful thinking. It's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It says the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. You have to think on what the day will be. You may be in a sweet spot of life right now, and things may be going perfectly for you. Your best is yet to come. You'll never pull out of spiritual apathy apart from in the knowledge of, no, it is better. What God has for us is amazing, particularly because as you enter trouble and trial, your joy is going to go down. It can only be lifted by this knowledge. Okay, the third ingredient that it gives us to spiritual vitality is you have to persevere in obedience. I'm calling you. If you're a Christian here, you're called to obey God, that a life of obedience leads to a greater joy than a life of selfishness or a life of just doing what you want. A life of obedience leads to joy. You see this in chapters 6 and 7, 7 and 8. In these two chapters, these are two recorded sermons from Zechariah. Two recorded sermons. Now, now chapter 7 is kind of a look back. He's preaching to the people, saying, don't forget your fathers. Your fathers did not administer justice in the gates. They did not take care of the widow and the orphan. They did not take care of the refugee. And I sent them into exile. He says, I scattered them among the nations. In chapter 8 in the sermon, he begins by saying, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to regather them. God is giving a word of grace by promising that he's going to save. That God unilaterally, not based on our obedience, but because of his kindness, he's going to save people. And so he preaches in chapter 8 on his good care for his people. Only then does he move to what we need to be doing. And you see this at the end of chapter 8 when he says in verses 16 and 17, these are the things you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Do you see what he's seeing in 7 and 8? You're called to obey. When you live in a disregard to God, you will not be spiritually vital. You will be unhappy. You will feel guilty. You'll begin wondering when the other shoe will drop. You're wondering when you're going to be finding out, when you'll be found out. There is a, there is a discomfort comes to the person who continues, unless you ultimately end up just searing your soul and you just justify yourself beyond measure. But what he's saying is if you want to be spiritually renewed and vital, 
then you're called to walk in obedience. But I want you to see that your obedience is preceded by his kindness. In other words, he tells you what he's going to do before he asks you to obey. Many of you think, perhaps, that if I obey, God will love me. And I'm saying that's not true. You obey because he has already loved you. See, if, if you're trying to walk in obedience with God to somehow secure the divine's favor, you turn God into a marketeer. You're always running short. Have I done enough? Did I do this right? No, God calls for obedience among his people after he has graced them. And that's the way it is for you. Walk in obedience because he has already loved you. Don't do it because you think you'll have some spiritual ladder that you'll climb up a run or two. Now, walking in obedience on the grace of God can't be done alone. You have to do this in community. You notice in the verses that I read, he says these are the things you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments, presumably, to one another. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. There is no way, there is this increase within Christianity that says you can be alone and read your Bible and grow in holiness. God has intended for the church to be the center of where faith is developed. Obedience is born. You cannot do this alone. You cannot be a Christian and thrive alone. You can't do it. It won't happen. Uh, you can't practice the one and others, number one. All the obligations that Jesus gave to us about loving one another and forgiving one, it has to be done in community. That's why when God sent out the apostles, what did the apostles do? They planted churches. They planted churches across the Mediterranean Basin to gather people together so that they could love one another. And that's what we do here. How ought we to love one another? How ought we to... Th think about what he says here. He, he says, we are to speak truth to one another. Have you been lying? He says, render judgments that are true and make for peace. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't prejudge people. You know, don't assign them motives that they may not have. Don't devise evil in your hearts. We do this by coming together and confessing our sin. We want to be a church where you are safe enough to be able to confess your sin to a brother or sister. In other words, you're asking for their help. We're praying together. We're asking God to give us grace with one another. We invite correction from one another. In other words, you're not going to be able to persevere until the finish line without one another. You know, as a staff, we invite correction from one another. Uh, I do with Carol, and Carol does with me. We, do you realize you need people's correction in your life? I mean, if you never, if, if in the past 30 days, you haven't asked anyone to weigh into your life on how you can walk more obediently with God, what should I assume by that? Should I assume that you, you've, done it all right or should I assume you need no help w what ought we to assume now I know that's it's very kind of dangerous because you're opening yourself up for them to but if they love you and they want you to be happy in God they're going to say yeah we're going off rail here let's get back on rail that's where the joy is the joy is with God the joy is not in satisfying your immediate physical impulses so we we need one another Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian in the um, 20th century during World War II. Many of you have read his book, Life Together, and this is a passage that comes from it. 
He says, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or sister, in the mouth of a man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. It says the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's word is sure. You know how this feels. You're languishing. You're struggling in life. You're, you're having trouble believing. And so a brother or sister come to you and they read the scriptures or they remind you of a promise of God or, or, or they share a truth about God that you feel your soul just kind of being lifted up and helped. I, I've been carried along by these. Someone just, they'll text me a verse at the right time and I'll be, it just helps. It stabilizes you. It strengthens you. For us to persevere with a spiritual vitality, we need one another. And we need one another helping us walk in obedience. Okay, the last thing I'll give you, the last ingredient is found in the last part of the book and that is to fix your eyes on this Messiah. Now, this is where it gets a little crazy. In chapters 9 through 14, it has prose, it has poems, it has symbolism. What Zechariah is doing is he's preparing the people. A Messiah is coming. So this fourth ingredient is to fix your eyes on this Jesus, fix your eyes on this Messiah. And what, what Zechariah is doing is he's getting the people to be prepared for this coming deliverer. They know they're in trouble. They know the city's in ruins. They, they are spiritually renewed. They build the temple, and the temple's a shadow of what it will be. They know that though they're back from exile, they're not fully out of exile. They need God. They know they need that. And so Zechariah is saying, a Messiah will come and deliver, and he's going to prepare them for it. And so you're going to see this in 9 through 14. You're going to see two things. You're going to see this Messiah come, but he's rejected. So let me read to you from chapter 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah is saying, listen, this Messiah that you need, he's going to come and you'll identify him because he's going to be riding on a donkey. And he's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to bring salvation and he's going to bring peace. That's what you're going to find in chapter 9. You're going to find in chapter 10 that this king who rides on a donkey, he's actually also a shepherd. He is a shepherd. He's going to call his people. He's going to gather his people. And this shepherd you're going to find in chapter 10 and 11 has been rejected by the people. This Messiah is going to come and he's going to come to save. And he's going to identify himself by riding a donkey. And he's going to gather the people. And we're going to turn away from him. We're going to reject him. We're not just going to reject him. He's going to be betrayed in chapter 11. And not just betrayed. He's going to be struck down and he'll be pierced. He's going to die, is what Zechariah is saying. Can you believe this? They had to be thinking he's going to die. But then as you keep reading in 13 and 14, you find out, but he's going to reign his foot is going to land on the mount. And, and he's going to rule over the nations. You see this in chapter 14. 17 times in chapter 14, you hear on that day, on that day. 
You heard Miguel preach it from Zephaniah on that day of judgment. It says in verse 9, he says, and, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. Zechariah is telling the people, listen, there is coming a day. This, this Messiah will come, he'll be rejected, he's going to die, but he's going to reign over all things and bring all things to perfect consummation. And we're left scratching our heads saying, I think he missed out the middle part of the story. I mean, what's going on here? He came and he died and now he came back. Well, of course, the New Testament makes this very clear for us, how we, how we untangle this knot. We see, of course, that Jesus came in Matthew 21 riding a donkey to fulfill this scripture. We see that Jesus was betrayed in Matthew 27 to fulfill this scripture. It says that, to fulfill the scripture in Zechariah. We know that he was struck down and he was pierced. You read that in John 19, and John says it was to fulfill the Scripture, that they were scattered as the disciples ran away from Jesus. So you see, Jesus has come to fulfill these promises that we have written 500 years before. Jesus is the shepherd king who came, and he came to die. Now, we know in the New Testament why he came to die, but Zechariah does, he does allude to it in chapter 13, verse 1. In fact, we're going to sing because William Cooper wrote our final song based on this verse that I'm about to read. He says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Chapter 3, he says, on a single day, they will be cleansed. Of course, this refers to what we now know in the New Testament with clarity, that Jesus Christ has come as the shepherd king to be rejected and to die so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God, that we might be the people of God. God's not worried about building buildings. He's worried about building people, people into the image of his son. And Jesus Christ has died that our sins might be cleansed. This isn't just for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, we already read in Romans chapter 9 through 11 a few months back that the descendants of Abraham are not the children of promise. The children of promise we found in Romans 4 were children of faith. So if you're a Christian here, we live in this interesting time, don't we? We live after this death and resurrection of Jesus. We live in a time where our sins have been cleansed and washed away. We've been made right with God. And we live looking to this return of Jesus. We long for his return. So for spiritual vitality to come to life, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on his death. Every day we preach the gospel to ourselves. We ought to always be, this is what he did for me. You know, many of you and, and I at times, we don't enjoy the forgiveness that has been so costly acquired for us. We, we feel down. We've sinned. We've sinned again. And, and, and we just do a pile on with ourselves. And, and we drag the sins of our past behind us. And what he's saying, there has been a fountain that has been opened that if you are fixing your eyes, by faith you are forgiven. To not walk in the forgiveness is to have a life that is sluggish and languishing. 
much of our spiritual vitality is lost because we haven't fixed our eyes on the one who has died and, and been raised for our justification. We're made right with God. You don't feel worthy of salvation. I get that, and you're not. But it's the grace of God that has made you worthy and made me worthy. By faith, we believe, yes, I know who I am. I'm a sinner, but I'm a saint, Martin Luther would say. Yes, I sin, but I repair to Christ for forgiveness. This is a truth that if you don't receive it and get it, you will languish in spiritual life. We don't just fix our eyes on what he has done. We fix our eyes on what he's coming to do, which is to bring about a peace, separating sheep and goats, bringing justice to the wicked, and we will shout hallelujah for that, and to bring joy to us, a full joy. Now, if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, or you're looking at the faith, you're inquiring of Jesus, you know, the passage actually speaks to you in chapter 12, because it gives us a scene of what that final day will be like. And it's both threatening, but it's still inviting. He says in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. In other words, there's a day coming. I want you to see, these are Yahweh's words. These are God's words. So God says, when they look on me, God says, on him whom they've pierced. You see this unification of God the Father and God the Son. You see it at the cross that Jesus Christ was the divine reconciling us to the Father. You're going to look on him on that final day and mourn. You're going to mourn because you've missed the opportunity to repent before God. See, if you're here, I'm thankful that you're here. Becoming a Christian means that you recognize you need Christ to be reconciled to God. You cannot live long enough to be good enough to somehow secure God saying, you did a good job, come into my kingdom. Our wickedness and our rebellion goes beyond our own memory. We need one to deliver. That's what it means to become a Christian. continually repair to him. And if you're a Christian, you still repair to him. You know, Cornelius Plantinga is a theologian in the Midwest, and he says repentance is like taking the garbage out. I mean, you don't do it once and don't do it. You keep doing it. So for the Christian here, repair to Christ. If you feel overwhelmed by your life right now and the sins that you've bathed in, repair to him. Look, fix your eyes on him. It will, it will renew your soul with joy. So Zechariah here is kind of the spiritual doctor. Here's the remedy. The remedy is practice repentance. The remedy is, is to, to gain that vision of God's sovereign rule that he's going to bring all things to a perfect end. Walk in obedience and get your brothers and sisters to help you. If you're struggling, if you're tripping over sin, then seek help from a brother or sister. Would you please pray for me? Would you please walk with me in this life? in a transparent way. And then last, it would be to fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus has walked. He's fulfilled this passage in Zechariah 9, 10, and 11. He's going to fulfill 12 and 13 and 14. 
So let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace that this might enthuse your soul toward him, give you a greater love for him. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.